0: Welcome to *Hence the Future* podcast. I'm Adam Moore Cronin,
1: and I'm Justin Clark.
0: And today we're discussing the future of aging. With us today is David Sinclair, professor of biology at Harvard Medical School, multiple-time entrepreneur, and author of the new best-selling book *Lifespan: Why We Age and Why We Don't Have to*. David, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Moore. Hey, Justin, thanks for having me on. We found your book to be really fascinating and it's just incredible that for all of human history, we've thought of aging as something that just happens. We haven't thought of it as a disease that should be treated and potentially cured along with all the other diseases. And you and your team have really been courageous in breaking through those barriers of of narrow thinking and publishing research out of your lab that suggests not only is aging something that can be slowed down and mitigated, It's also something that can be potentially reversed. So we want to talk about that, and then we would like to spend the majority of our discussion on part three of your book, The Future. So to start, perhaps for our listeners, you can provide some context around why do we age, why might we not have to, and how has our thinking about the science of aging evolved?
2: Yeah, well, biology, uh, and especially the science of aging, Uh, It was really the the backwater of of the sciences. Uh, And 30 years ago, it was considered a career-ending move for me to start working on aging. Uh, But I did it anyway because this is what I regard as the biggest problem that we face, and and it needs to be worked on. Now, if you fast forward 30 years to now, the science of aging is at the forefront of biology. We've been publishing in my lab and about 20 of my colleagues in in the leading journals of the world – And the science is now pretty advanced. We know the genes that control aging in our bodies. Um, There are a few dozen of them. They fall into three camps. But we also know, um, and this is very recent, I made these discoveries as I was writing the book, which is lucky for all of us. Uh, We've discovered that there's a backup copy of youthful information so we can reset the cell's hard drive and turn the clock back We call this the epigenome, uh, the systems that control which genes are on and off. And my theory, I call it the information theory of aging, is that we lose this epigenetic information over time and we can reset it. So I've gone from, yeah, we might in our lifetime live a bit longer, a few more years To There are definitely things we can do in our lifetime to live 10 or more years, maybe even 20. And now I'm saying, I don't even know where we're going to be because we can now reset the age of of tissues, at at least Mm -hmm. in mice right now, but we may be able to reset them, not just once, but 30, 40, maybe a hundred times. Wow.
1: Yeah, that would be amazing. So maybe uh, could you talk a little bit more about what happens when you reset these genes? Are there some side effects or do they completely reset to a younger age?
2: Yeah. Uh, so the the analogy is that there's a pianist, and uh, the piano is the genome, and there are 20,000 keys, each one being a different gene. Yep. And the pianist is playing the beautiful song of the, the life of the cell, and the cell has to play the same tune. If it's a different tune, it'll be a different type of cell. Yep. But the pianist starts playing keys incorrectly in our teenage years, in our 20s. She's making a, a fair number of mistakes, by the time you're my age, 50, uh, it's not really pretty to listen to, and by 80, uh, you, you're going to walk out of the concert. And here's what what we discovered is that you can replace the pianist, or at least you can you can fix her eyesight so she can read the music again. And the cells that we reset, the one that we've, the part of the body we've focused on is the retina, the back of the eye in mice. We can damage the back of the eye, um, we can pinch it. We can give it glaucoma so that the pressure in the eye damages the retina. Mm -hmm. Or we can just let aging take its course the same way it does in our eyes. And the nerve cells in in the back of our eyes lose their identity. They forget that they're nerve cells and they don't work. Now, what we've been able to do is to put a combination of three genes called Yamanaka factors into the back of the eye with a virus and turn them on with just an antibiotic called doxycycline. We chose to turn it on with doxycycline, by the way, because we didn't know what was going to happen. We needed an on and and an off switch. And when we turn it on for just a few weeks, uh, these mice get their eyesight back. Old mice can see again. And when we measure the age of those cells at the back of the eye, we can do that very accurately now. There's a clock inside cells. Basically, they're they're building up scum or plaque on, on the genome, which we can read. And the more you have in certain places, the older the cell is. We can see that when we reset the age of the eye, uh, you do get the clock to go backwards. And what's remarkable is when you do that, the eye acts as though it's young. Uh, Not because it thinks it's young, but because it literally is young again. And it works, it works perfectly in the case of the old mice. Now, we we were nervous, of course, because no one had ever done this before. It could have failed. But it could have also worked too well and stripped all of the, all of the plaque off the DNA. And that mm-hmm. would result in a stem cell, a pluripotent stem cell, that would have probably caused the eye to not only become blind, but to become a giant tumor. So we, we have to be very careful about how we do this pianist replacement, and we don't just completely s- smash the piano with a sledgehammer. Um, mm-hmm. But fortunately, the cell knows how to become young and not further if you do it just right. And, uh, and beautiful things happen. So we, we've done the eye and we're going to be working. We're currently working on other tissues in the animal of resetting that as well.
0: That's incredible. And I actually talked to my, my cousin who's an ophthalmologist about some of your work and he was really interested with, you know, what could happen in his field and how it could progress. And, You know, he was wondering, is there a point where it's too far gone, where the optic nerve is just totally dead and you can't reverse it? And it's something that can be reversed more if you're, you know, having issues with the eye, but the the cells themselves are still alive.
2: Yeah, well, we can revive nerves that are dysfunctional and old and damaged, uh, but we can't bring them back from the dead. Um, It's not that powerful, a technology. So you do need some semblance of cells. The the good news, though, in the eye and the ear, you don't need a lot of cells to be able to see something. Uh, In fact, in the ear, which is the largest cause of uh, disability um, in the elderly based on uh, loss of senses, and no one's even talking about it, really, being able to reverse hearing loss uh, with a therapy, not in a big way. But what we're what we've realized is you can maintain just 10% of the cells in your ear and you still have uh, really great hearing. 90% is extraneous for reasons that we don't fully understand, but uh, you don't need a lot to, to get a lot uh, out of an eye or, or an ear. Hmm.
0: Wow. And is that something that you guys are thinking for, for potentially a future experiment where you apply it to the ear and growing back hair follicles? uh it's a current experiment so oh, wow. I'll let you know how it goes That's awesome. I don't know if you know but Justin and I do work for a company called Sonic Cloud which is a personalized app that you know helps you hear um and it it's you're totally right in the hearing space it's basically there's like no hope for actually curing hearing loss it's all just about how can you cope with it you know in the best way possible. So that would be incredible. And I guess if you if you had to guess what would be what would come in the future do you think it's likely that we are able to solve hearing loss in let's say in our lifetime
2: well the the physicians that i work with who are experts in the eye and and now the ear are really optimistic you know i, I get criticized because i'm mr optimistic and i think that um uh, we're going to solve this, You know, like talking to the Wright brothers, are we ever going to fly? Of course we are, we understand how things work now. Uh, but when my colleagues who have worked in these fields for decades, if, when they're the ones that are saying, this is going to work, this has to work, this is fantastic, let's do a clinical trial on humans in the eye in two years, then you know, you got to listen. And, and that's what they're saying right now.
0: Right. I'm, I'm also curious about If there's anything particular about the brain like for instance my my grandpa had uh dementia later in life and your book really resonated with me when you talk about your grandma and how you know she was a shell of her former self that she was in her youth and i I felt the same way about my grandpa is there more difficulty with restoring someone's mind and and the cells in their brain and their, their neurons or do the same sort of learnings that your lab has has uh, realized from the experiments with mice and and yeast cells, could that also apply as well to the brain?
2: We're testing that. We are actually uh, making a mouse where we can reprogram the brain. And we're curious whether um, you will lose memories if you get younger, Um, and it'll be interesting if you, you even regain memories that you've lost. And those two questions are what we want to figure out. We don't know the answer to that. My hunch is that um, there are memories that we can regain. Um, Li Wei Sai is a researcher at the Picar Institute in Boston. And she's found that there are certain things you can do to recover lost memories in Alzheimer's. And so what that means is that patients really haven't lost their memory. They just can't access them. And I think if we we make the brain young again, uh, it, there's every chance that um, our grandparents would actually wake up and remember a lot more than they than they currently do.
1: That's interesting. So, with a younger brain, is that like just uh, speaking about the mechanics behind that? Is that like does the brain look like it has more gray matter does it have more neuronal con- connections like what what does a younger brain look like compared when compared to an older brain or is that it should look the same
2: okay yeah okay it's it, uh, really just when you look at the genes that are switched on and off they'll be in a more youthful pattern and that's what we see in the eye okay okay
0: all right then another question that came up when I was talking to some of our research team is the delivery mechanism. So, if, you know, how it seems like this might be one of the limitations that we need to overcome. What is the ideal way to deliver this therapy? Um, I, I believe in your book you talk about how gene therapy is really the most effective mechanism we have right now, but um, to have the greatest effect, you, you know, you would have to put it in the specific spot where it can help. And I'm just wondering if it's indeed able to sort of spread to the rest of the body. If you, for instance, took a pill since it has to go through the liver or if, uh, if there's some better way, like what would the ideal mechanism be for delivering these therapies?
2: Uh, yes. So we're going through various evolutions of this technology. We've only been doing this actually for about two years now. Um, So right now we use an adeno-associated virus to deliver to the eye or to the whole body, which works great in the eye, by the way. There's already uh, medicines for treating genetic diseases in the eye and in sickle cell disease in the blood. But these viruses aren't perfect. They do go to the liver by far, and uh, we'd rather have it spread evenly around the body. Um, So stage two is to use viruses that are now evolved um, to be more easily spread through every cell type it's not perfect uh, just yet but they're getting better and better There are now uh, millions of different types of viruses you can choose from to be able to infect uh, mice and people Um, but ultimately i want to get away from viruses i want to go to uh, a pill which would consist of some chemicals that reprogram cells the same way that the virus can do right now. And that's why we're searching through uh, thousands of different molecules to see which ones can do what these genes actually do. And that's the easy part, actually. The hard part was actually realizing that there is a backup copy of youthful information. And now it's just a question of what's the easiest way to access that.
0: Right. Yeah, I love the metaphors you use in the book about the digital backup copy and polishing the DVD and the stem cells coming down from the mountain, they're really a really useful way to think about it. Um, and I guess before we get into the future scenarios, I know our listeners are really going to want to hear what they can do specifically for themselves to live a longer, healthier life. So what would you recommend, um, not a medical recommendation, but what are some things that there is evidence for that would help someone to live longer?
2: Uh, sure. That uh, there's a lot. Um, the whole part two of the book is about how to live a healthy life, and then what I do is listed uh, on page 304. Uh, I sent out a, a tweet a few days ago. I uh, yeah, saw that the top six things. Yeah, uh, people like like that. So the the thing that I do that has made the biggest difference and also works the best in studies of longevity is to eat less often. You know, we're told by our parents, three meals a day, three square meals a day and snacks in between, don't be hungry. Uh, I think that that's completely wrong. I think it's damaging. And it's no surprise to me that we have an obesity epidemic with that kind of an attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that two meals a day is certainly sufficient for adults. Uh, and one meal a day uh, is is fine for someone my age at 50. And that isn't just sufficient a little bit of food goes a long way in terms of longevity. And the ancients knew this, that when you fast, you you come out healthier. Uh, we forgot about that. We thought that it was good not to stress the pancreas and let's never have too low levels of glucose. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, what we've done by always being satisfied, and for most of us, we don't have to run for a living, uh, we've put our bodies in a state of complacency and if we have a lot of adiposity, so fat on our bodies and we don't move and we always eat, our bodies actually don't turn on their longevity genes anymore. And without their activity, we age faster. And, and that's the real key to what I do in my life, um, is to make sure that I'm turning on those genes as best I can. And so I said, eat, eat less, I eat two and hopefully one meal a day. Um, some people don't eat for two or three days and the real experts don't eat for a week uh, for every few months. Uh, I find it too difficult to, to do that. Peter too. Yeah, exactly, yeah, Peter can do that. But that's it. that's his job now, so <laughs> he's got a bit of an advantage. <laughs> yeah. um, other things, uh, have get a good night's sleep. Uh, sleep and aging are intimately linked. Those same genes that control aging also control your sleep and vice versa. So I have figured out ways to get a, mostly a good night's sleep every night. Um, it includes um, taking melatonin, avoiding blue light, um, trying to calm down an hour before I go to bed by doing something else other than emails and surfing the internet. Um, a few drops of CBD oil seem to help. And there's a molecule called L-theanine, which is a a supplement, which also I think is helping. But I also, I know a lot more about my sleep now that I wear a ring that tells me how my sleep patterns are going. And that's been very helpful. Getting biofeedback uh, is great. I have, I do blood tests. I do ring uh, measurements. I have a a watch and uh, that tells me the usual things. And I also have a blood monitor. So right now I could, Stick my phone uh, on my arm and tell you what my blood sugar levels are and have been. Um, in fact, if you if you hold on, I will just tell you what my current <laughs> blood sugar levels are. Awesome. You'll hear it. It beeps. Uh, my blood sugar levels are 97. Uh, so you want to be well? I want to be under 100. And mm. uh, so I've been hovering around 90 to 97 the whole night which is good, Um, and I don't want it to go too high, so I try to eat foods that won't spike it and get me over 150. Um, So that's another thing I do. Uh, What else do I do? I I go to the gym. I think exercise clearly is important, especially when you're young. Um, It's something you can do your whole life. You don't have to be a marathon runner to get the benefits. You can run for 10 minutes every few days and lose your breath, but losing your breath is important because losing your breath also turns on longevity genes. Um, as you get older, it's more important to do hip flex exercises to make sure you, you're not going to fall and break a bone when you when you get older. That's mm-hmm. a major cause of death, one every 19 minutes in this country. Uh, and then you also want to do stretching. It's surprising how stiff you get as you get older. And again, that that's going to be a real problem with mobility as you get older. Um, and lifting weights is important too because you lose muscle mass as you get older. Uh, partly due to lack of testosterone. Uh, and so all of that is actually a lot of fun uh, if you do it. Um, I do it with my son. It's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then uh, one other thing I'll, I'll mention before I'll get, let you guys ask another question is uh, another way to shock the body is to uh, be in a sauna or, and then jump into a cold tub. So I do that as well. And there's some evidence, um, increasing amount of work showing that saunas are healthy and jumping into cold is also really good. And I don't think it's because it just shocks you. I think it's because again, it's turning on these longevity genes that we work on.
1: Yeah. Dr. Rondra Patrick has a lot of really good information about hot and cold therapy. Um, just for listeners, if you go to foundmyfitness.com, she has a lot of PDFs about the research behind that. So that's interesting. You mentioned a lot of uh, hormetic stressors there, but um Maybe we just go into the future scenarios and talk about where we think this is going.
0: Yeah, let's start with the best case. David, in your best case scenario, what does a day in the life look like for someone, you know, living in 2050 or, or 2100 when we've made a lot of progress here?
2: Best case scenario. Yeah, so 2050 is it's going to be possible to know when you're getting sick years before you actually get sick and and then the then doctors hopefully will have come around to the realization that playing whack-a-mole medicine isn't the best way to do it right now we have an annual checkup which is a joke uh and then when we get sick we go see the doctor 2050 we're going to get an alert on our phones and so is our doctor if something is serious cancer has been detected some anomaly you're typing the keys differently, you you, you might be getting um, Parkinson's. Uh, that That's coming for sure by 2050. And what I expect is by then um, it will be possible to be prescribed a medicine to slow these things down. I mean, right now we just call it aging and consider it natural. But we used to say that about cancer when we didn't know how cancer worked as well. Uh, so 2050, uh, you'll get a medicine, you'll be sent home and said... Uh, take this pill and uh, you'll slow down your aging. Uh, I think around that time or somewhere towards the end of this century, the reprogramming work will happen. Um, Well, by 2050, you'll be able to reprogram the eye and the ear and other parts of the body. So let's say you've lost half your vision or all of your hearing, Uh, you'll go in, you'll get one injection, you'll get a course of antibiotics, take it for three weeks. And over those three weeks, you'll see that your eyesight comes back to how it was when you were young, and your hearing comes back as well. And then uh, you can take antibiotics every time you you get older and you lose your vision again and your hearing. Uh, and that you're, you're basically a genetically modified human that, that you can turn on super genes. These genes, by the way, that we put into the, the mice right now are, are genes from from embryos. So we're basically turning on the rejuvenation properties that we have when we're embryos. And we know when we damage an embryo, it'll grow back uh, a large part of the body, like a salamander does still in adulthood. So 2100 is interesting. That hopefully will be a world where either we're engineered from a young age or we get an injection when we're older or a course of pills. But nevertheless, we'll be able to not just slow down aging with a pill, but reset the clock completely. You could be 70, and if you wanna be as healthy as a 40-year-old, you can do that, you just ask for ask for the treatment. Um, and parts that have been damaged irre- irreparably, um, I don't know, let's say you've lost a finger or your, your liver is, is not worth saving, uh, we'll just grow you a new one. You can put mm. viruses in your finger and it'll grow like a salamander or we'll take a skin cell, you'll have a bank of pluripotent stem cells that have been made out of your body and they'll just grow you a a new liver. It'll be a little liver when they put it in, but livers, once they're in the spot, they grow to the right size. Somehow they know, and nobody knows why, but somehow they know what size to be inside your body. And so if we live long enough, and and kids these days should be able to make it to that time, uh, it will be possible to reset the biological age
0: that's amazing yeah and and in your book you you talk about your frustrations with the current state of medicine where you know your daughter had Lyme disease but it was so it took so long to actually get the test results and and you know get the treatment that she needed and you know I I actually had Lyme disease as a kid as well although I had the ring around it so they were able to catch it uh, pretty early but I'm curious if you could say a bit more about this vision you paint of where you could actually just swab your you know some saliva or prick your your thumb and then upload it to a computer and have a remote you know doctor sort of instantly give you a diagnosis um, based on those results i I loved your your vision of that, so maybe you can uh, say a little bit more about that for for listeners
2: yeah well the the funny thing about um, what I wrote in the book is. That the reason I know so much about it is that each of these technologies, I've started a company to do it. Uh, And one of these companies is called ArcBio, A-R-C-B-I-O. And ArcBio was a spin out of my lab and another lab at Stanford that works on uh, retrieving DNA out of ancient artifacts like mummies. And what we've figured out is that we can very rapidly isolate DNA from either the blood or the skin, wherever you want and run that through a DNA sequencing machine which are getting faster and faster and smaller and smaller, um, even faster than Moore's law. You can now do what used to be a billion dollar genome 20 years ago for about a hundred dollars. And instead of it taking five different countries to figure this out, you can do it on a candy bar sized device that's attached to your computer. Um, And by 2050, it should basically be a home test on a little device. It could be on your phone for all we know. Uh, and the cost will be free. The, the, the most expensive thing in the test will be the needle to prick your finger. But what we're doing right now is it still takes about 24 hours to process and run the samples, but that'll change. We can take a blood sample from a patient and find all the foreign DNA in the bloodstream. We take out the human DNA because we don't need to waste our money on that. And we run it through algorithms. We have a database of all known pathogens to humanity. And we're going to find new ones that people have never found before. And then uh, it's pretty quick. We just say, here's what you've got. And here's how to kill it based on everything we know. And, And this is artificial intelligence, machine learning to do this. But imagine a world where, and it's only a few years away, that every child with a runny nose comes into a doctor's office and the doctor on the spot takes a sample and the machine tells the doctor what it is uh, you know why guess at what things are why wait for a few days to try to grow what's in the body and a lot of things like Lyme disease don't grow in the lab so you have to have to use these technologies if you want to make a fast diagnosis
0: yeah yeah i love your analogy in the book about how saying that Cancer is lung cancer because it's in the lung is like saying a whale is a fish because it's in the ocean Like you really haven't you know pinpointed that species on in a scientific way So I really like that Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how society would change or just how The how it would be to live a life in this kind of world where you have so much more time where you're not rushed and uh, you know you open your book by talking about living like a six-year-old forever, and how that could really change the nature of, of existence. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
2: It's, um, well, it's a, it's a world that'll be as different to uh, those people, probably us. Um, looking back at today, as, as we look back at the 1920s, when people would die from a, a splinter and childbirth um, and polio, I, we, we would, that's, that's hell on earth for us to think about a world like that. And it's going to be the same where we will be telling our grandkids that there was a time when being 80 years old uh, was old and that half of 80-year-old men in this country were already dead. That, that is a tragedy that, that in the future will, will not happen at all. And my father is a good example of what a life can be like at 80 He started changing his life in his 60s and 70s. He started exercising a lot in 70s. Um, Started taking some supplements that he and I um, independently decided were worth taking. Um, All Mm -hmm. three partly based on my research. And uh, he's gone from a guy that was not looking forward to the next five years getting into a nursing home. He was seeing his colleagues and friends decline and many of them die. And instead of getting older, he just physically and mentally got younger. Um, And the guy he is now at 80 is a much healthier, happier, stronger, fitter guy than he was 10 years ago. He started a new career. He's just ordered his dream car. He's happy, he's optimistic. He's looking forward to another 10, 20 years. That's, I mean, it's no proof that what he's done is the reason, but men in our family don't usually make it past 70. We have high cholesterol, we, we die early. So he's the oldest lived man ever in our family's history. And he's not just living. He's living like he was 30 again. Um, but that's what I want the whole world to be like, that an 80-year-old is just getting started, just like my father is these days. That's awesome.
1: Would you be willing to mention, like, what supplements he's taking? Is that something you can say on the podcast? I think I've heard you mention it on Peter Attia's and uh, Rhonda Patrick's mm-hmm. podcast
2: um, just out of curiosity for listeners. Yeah, sure. You know, I've listed them uh, in my book, so they're not mm-hmm. a secret. Yeah. Um, and the, all the doses are in there. So there's, there's a fair amount of detail in that. Yeah. And and my newsletter, I put out more info. But yeah, the, the main ones that we work on in my lab that, that I take and my dad does, uh, one is metformin, which is a diabetes drug. You need a prescription for that. But studies of millions of people now um, have shown that it's, very safe. And studies of hundreds of thousands of mostly U.S. veterans have shown that on this drug, you're not just protected from diabetes, um, you're also protected from cancer and heart disease and Alzheimer's and frailty. So we talk about a future where a doctor can give you a drug for aging. Uh, That future is now. It's just only available to a few people because not everybody's read my book or listened to Mm -hmm. podcasts like this. But it's doable. I mean, the, the future is here now. The other molecule... Uh, is resveratrol, which is a molecule that's found in little quantities in red wine, about a milligram in a red wine uh, glass. Mm -hmm. And I take a thousand milligrams a day. So please don't go drink a thousand glasses of red wine every morning. (laughs) That will not make you live longer. Um, But resveratrol has been a really great molecule for us. It activates the sirtuin enzyme that defends the body in many different ways. And I've been taking that as, as my father for over a decade now. And our cardiovascular systems, I'm sure, are thanking us for it. Uh, we have no sign of any type of cardiovascular disease in our bodies, which I think is a, a good sign, because, as I mentioned, people in my family typically don't make it this far. Right. And then the third thing that uh, we think is a great combination for us is called NMN, not to be confused with M&Ms, they <laughs> would uh, right. You know, you can imagine that there's some idiot in their basement eating M&Ms and uh, (laughs) drinking 1,000 glasses of red wine for breakfast. Like, I'm going to make it. Uh, So, yeah, we we do that. And NMN is a precursor to NAD. And NAD, which stands for uh, nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, it's a molecule that we need for life. It is needed for chemical reactions in the body but it's also needed for sirtuins to work. And without NAD, sirtuins won't work hard at protecting us from aging. Um, We won't burn fat as easily, we won't get strong, we won't uh, keep inflammation in check. And so that combination of high NAD, uh, resveratrol, uh, which by the way, you can think of as the gas for these enzymes and the accelerator pedal uh, and then metformin, which we don't exactly know how it works, but it, it seems to be anti-aging. Mm-hmm. Those three things um, make us biologically feel a lot younger than we used to. I mean, I, I have a resting heart rate in the low to mid-40s, which is what you'd expect of an athlete. And I'm no athlete. I sit and type all day for a living <laughs> and get on airplanes. I get to get to the gym just once a week and run maybe 10 minutes but I've got a body like an athlete, apparently. So something's going on. And when we feed these molecules to mice, they they run further, they have better blood flow, they have more endurance. So the way we feel in my family is what we see happens to mice. It's not proof, right? We need clinical trials and those are ongoing. I've been doing clinical trials with a molecule that raises NAD in the body for about two years now with some great colleagues at Harvard but that is all stuff that I can't report on yet just yet. I mm-hmm. I do know more than anybody on the planet, um, except you know, my co-colleagues, about NMN. And sometimes I'm criticized by saying, Oh, David, you can't say that. Well, you know, th- that's frustrating because I know far more than anybody, and I certainly know more than my critics about how all this works. It's mm-hmm. just that sometimes it takes me ten years to publish this work. Um, and that's actually one of the reasons why I wrote the book. It's that I had so much information, even stuff that wasn't yet well-known by scientists, and I wanted to tell the world about it, because we need to mobilize an army to work on this. And right now it's just a few labs around the world.
0: That's awesome. So maybe just to round out the best case, and then we can get into the worst-case scenario for a bit. How long can people who are, let's say, alive listening to this podcast, you know, let's say the average listener is a millennial, how long would, can someone like that expect to live? And then what would you say for, you know, the next generation, like Justin and I are, you know, neither of us have kids, but we'll probably have kids in the coming years. Like what would our, how long could our kids expect to live just based on your best case
2: scenario? Mm-hmm. Well, you guys should easily make it, make it to 100. Um, uh, a hundred. A child born today is a If the trend continues that we've seen over the last 100 years, 150 years, if that keeps going in a straight line as it has done so, a child born today will, on average, make it to 104. That's the average person who doesn't take care of themselves, typically. What happens to someone who's really been taking care of their body? Right, 110. Why not? Now, we know our maximum lifespan right now as humans is 122 based on the fact that nobody's ever lived over at that age that we could confirm, and even the 102 is questioned. But people have definitely lived to 117. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that's still a pretty good life, right? If we, we know that we have 40 years here to play with, but will there be technologies in our lifetime to get us past 120? Um, I think so. I think that the people who lived to those ages didn't have the technology, the know-how, about lifestyle, about supplements, about monitoring, mm-hmm. about organ replacement that we have now. Um, so I think we'll break through the maximum barrier, um, and I, I'm hopeful that one day we'll be able to use our ingenuity to live like other species on the planet. Uh, a bristlecone pine can live a few thousand years. A, a Greenland shark will live a few hundred, even up to 400 years. So it's not impossible to do this. Um, but you might say, well, we're we're not a tree we're not a shark well what about a whale a whale is a a mammal it's very close to us genetically and there are bowhead whales that live 100 years longer than we do how do they do it well we think that pianist plays the tune for longer and if we can figure out how to maintain the information in the body the epigenetic information for longer then we too could theoretically live as long as a bowhead whale
1: Wow, I actually have one more question about uh, the best case scenario, because this is super exciting to me. And one of the things that I think about a lot is what happens societally and what happens in the education system in particular. So if we have these much longer lifespans, do people start to get PhD level educations as the norm? And what does this do to science? Like there's, it seems like there's a lot of peripheral benefits to this. We can run much longer-term experiments, you know, aging research obviously is a long-term experiment in humans, Um, physics experiments or astrophysics experiments when we're doing space missions could be greatly affected. I'm curious what your thoughts are um, just in terms of science and education and um, just societally, what a longer lifespan Mm -hmm. uh, could do
2: for us. Yeah, well, the best way to predict the future is to look at trends in the past. Mm-hmm. And let's just take the last 100 years as an example. A 100 years ago, kids were still working in factories. They left school when they were about, what was it, 13, 14. If you're lucky, you went to college, but you'd have to have uh, a very interesting uh, family life. You probably were very wealthy. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, you can you can go to college. Um, it's it's possible. It's not for everybody, but it's certainly uh, the majority of people have the choice to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that's that's economical. so one of the and part of it's because people worry that their life is running out and they need to quickly get on to their careers. Mm-hmm. But both of those problems, I think, will be solved when we stop treating sick people and make them healthier again. 17% of this country's wealth every year, the US wealth um, is spent on healthcare. um, And most of that is taking care of the elderly. Mm -hmm. If you make people live longer, they actually cost much less to take care of because they die sooner. It's a fact that the older someone lives, the less burden they are when they die, they die quicker. A centenarian, they're great, right? Centenarians that live over 100 die very quickly. So if we could all be like that, then that's that's literally trillions of dollars saved in uh, in money over just the, the, the decade uh, that this gets in, discovered. Right. What do you do with $10 trillion? Well, you can put it into college funds. You can put it into saving the environment and species if you want. That's a lot of money. I don't know where else to get $10 trillion out of this economy. Um Besides, you know, shutting down defense and that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you don't want to be defenseless, of course. So, But this right. is a win-win, right? Families are better, healthier. People feel great. They're not suffering. And that money can be put into allowing people to be educated. I also like the idea of uh, what I'm calling skill baddicles, which is if if you're breaking up roads for a living, there's no way I'd, I don't think you'd want to work past a certain Age, let's call it mm-hmm. 50 or 60 but why not pause uh, and get some money for three four years to to start a new company or learn a trade learn an instrument learn a language go back to college because if if you're if at 80 you're only halfway through your lifespan uh it's not fair first of all if you've chosen the wrong career and you can't get out of it mm-hmm. but also i think it's everyone needs a chance to to have multiple careers. And I don't just mean changing jobs. I mean, totally changing what you did. I mean, why should you be doing at 50 what you decided to do when you were 20 if you no longer like your decision you made when you were 20? And having that long life allows you to have this new approach to life. And we're doing that now. You know, We do change our careers more often and it'll only become more um, appealing and possible as we live longer.
0: Yeah, I love the concept of having freedom over your life and being able to reinvent yourself and not having the march of time determine so much. And on, on this podcast, we talk a lot about freedom as sort of the master value of what we're trying to create. So I think that has huge potential. Um, maybe now we can move on and just talk a little bit about the worst case scenario. So what are some of the major concerns that you have about what could prevent us from making progress in this space like potential bottlenecks and then even if we are able to make progress in this space what are some threats to humanity that are still present
1: worst case scenario
2: right well th- there are some current threats to this not becoming a reality and then let me talk later about what happens right. if it's a reality? But the, the obstacles right now are uh, just human stupidity, uh, complacency. <laughs> you know, people, we, we as a species like consistency. And if we've been raised to think a certain way, it's very hard to change that rapidly. And especially when it comes to government regulations. And uh, as you, you've seen, even in your lifetimes, things are changing but it takes a generational shift. And what what the problem is right now is that doctors and the FDA, the regula- regulators, still think of aging as something that's acceptable um, and natural when it's actually causing most of the diseases in this country. So until we recognize aging as a condition that can be treated with a medicine, it's going to uh, languish. And we, people who develop drugs have started and I'm helping run about 14 companies they all of them, uh, they can't go after aging because aging is not considered a medical condition. And If you're not, you don't have a condition, then doctors won't treat you, right? You have to get sick first, typically, remember. And so we, we need those regulations changed. So that's a sad situation that I hope will change. But let's go a little bit more nightmarish. Um, first nightmare is that we don't change the retirement age and people live to 120 and they've retired halfway through their lives. And Social Security just goes bankrupt even more than it currently is headed to. So that that would be a stupid thing. I don't think that's going to happen because countries won't go bankrupt, typically, if they have decent leadership. But that has to change. That means we're going to have to work for longer in our lives, which some people aren't happy about. They don't like what they do. Again, another good reason to allow them to change what they do uh, once you've paid back your debt to society. Mm -hmm. Um, And then... On a personal level, one of the things that could go horribly wrong is that these treatments have a side effect that we don't know about. Now, right now, I don't know what that is. We've studied a lot of mice and a fair number of humans and haven't seen any any side effect. But I'm asked every day, could this cause cancer? Could it make the body stop making certain things and then it's worse than before? Is this like Dor- the picture of Dorian Gray, where we, we stay young, but if we stop it, we rapidly age? Um, I haven't seen that yet, but it could be that uh, if you reprogram the body too much, uh, you do cause cancer. And that would be, of course, something we really wouldn't want to do. And so what we're doing is being very careful about these clinical trials. We've been already spending many years just testing the safety, let alone whether they work or not. And that's also one of the the sad things about what I do is that um, I can do a mouse experiment in a couple of years and three years I know it works in those. Um, But to do that in humans takes a decade. And uh, just as an aside, it's pretty frustrating as a scientist to be criticized by uh, some members of the media saying, oh, he talks about mice so much. Well, you know, screw you. It it, it (laughs) takes a billion dollars to make a drug. Of course we're going to do mice. But do you want me to, to not talk about it for another 20 years until we know it works for sure in humans? I can do that. But I don't think that benefits society. And the public has a right to hear about the research that they're paying for with their taxes. Yeah, it's a good proof of concept. Um, yeah, so nightmares. That there's a lot of nightmares. And most of it's economic and social. Um, some some bioethicists think that if we live that long that we wouldn't get married or we'd be very ca- cautious about it because you don't want to live with the same person that long. And I debated Leon Cass, who's a a bioethicist. And I said, well, speak for yourself. I'd love to spend another 50 years with my wife. Right. Um, I bet his wife didn't like that. (laughs) (laughs) I think I said something like, I hope your wife's not listening to this radio show.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you also talk in, in your book about the potential for a pandemic, that even if we solve aging, which is the underlying root cause of most of the diseases that people face, especially older in, in life, that there still is the possibility of a major pandemic like the Spanish flu or something like Ebola, especially given how interconnected our world is today. Is that something you're still you know pretty concerned about?
2: Well, besides climate change, which we already see uh, causing major problems, uh, my hometown of Sydney is on fire right now. The biggest concern is is the pan- pandemic. Now, climate change is only—I shouldn't say only—but it it's going to limit our lives. It's going to destroy species, ex- wipe out whole uh, ecosystems, which is really bad. But Climate change isn't going to wipe out the human race. We'll still survive. It may not be as pleasant a world, but we'll still be round. We'll figure it out. But a pandemic has the chance, like it did in 1918, to wipe out one in every three people on the planet and send us back to the Dark Ages. And that's coming. That's going to happen. And we're, we're not ready for it at all as a society. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw, it was about a decade ago, there were some viruses coming out of Asia, bird flu. Um, for instance, and there, were, there was a panic. People didn't really know what to do. There was talk about um, putting gaffer tape, um, duct tape, around your house to try and stop the, <laughs> the disease. And Ebola, something like Ebola could mutate, and uh, you know we're back to the plague times. That That will come, and I hope we're ready. And one of the reasons that I have built this company that can detect infections very quickly uh, is to help detect and stop the spread of these diseases that will will be here within our lifetimes, no question. And
0: the anti-vaxxer movement has been made us it made it even more risky, right?
2: Well, we're, we're starting to see diseases that sh- that should never be in our country come back again. For that reason, um, yeah, the the anti-vaxxers, there are some pretty militant people out there who are are convinced that vaccines are causing problems, including autism. Um, But the the scientist that came out with that research has uh, admitted that that the research wasn't uh, reliable, and he's been disproven. Those papers are now taken out of circulation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I I think that if we were to stop vaccinating and go back to what life was like 100 years ago, uh, it wouldn't be long before we were praying for scientists' help.
0: Now I'm curious if you share Elon Musk's concern about AI you know Elon has said that it's the greatest threat to humanity and he considers it a greater threat than nuclear war uh, It doesn't seem like you have like you are as concerned at least from what's in the book i'm I'm curious uh, why that is if if you have a different way of thinking about the problem of of
2: AI yeah so i'm on the cutting edge of AI in, in that I know some very smart people working on it. And it's based on two things. One is the kind of AI that um, that Elon imagines. Um, it will come, but I also am confident that we humans can, can use technology for good and, and limit its use for bad. And I think AI um is less scary than atomic war. Um, and we came we came very close, but we didn't get uh, to see Armageddon. and because I, I also think that that there are some very smart people who can figure out how to uh, limit uh, AI and stop it from working against us. Now, if you fast forward to to what might actually happen, and uh, there there will be sentient beings within our lifetime. I've seen technology that that just makes my head spin. Um, recreating the brain uh, within a computer that's much faster and and of course can store the entire world's knowledge inside that object. That that is going to be some something that's a lot more intelligent than we are. But I don't think that intelligence has to be evil. Um, And we can, you know, imagine a world where if that evil set of beings that penetrates the entire internet shuts us down, okay? That would be bad. But I still think we'd recover from that faster than if the world became radioactive and was in a nuclear winter. I mean, they're both really bad, but it feels to me a bit like. Uh, first of all, I think Elon likes to be a contrarian, um, and most people in the, who are in the business don't agree with him. Um, but also that if I lived through Y two K, you guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's what it feels like. It's oh my goodness, worst case scenario, everything's going to shut down, hospital, people will die, and that didn't happen, and. After that, I I kind of I'm skeptical when people say computers are going to be the end of us.
1: Yeah, and people have been talking about AI for a very long time and how it's going to be the end of humanity. Back when, you know, Deep Blue was going to beat Garry Kasparov in chess, people thought that was the end. But, you know, there's a lot more that needs to be done before it'll take over the world. So, yeah, I think that's a really balanced view.
0: Well, even if, uh, if AI doesn't threaten us in the existential level that Elon talks about, uh, it does seem to me like there might be some economic implications of jobs being automated away. You know, This is something that Andrew Yang talks about a lot, the fact that the most common job in 30 U.S. states is truck drivers. You know, The next most common job is retail workers and self-driving cars may take away the driving jobs and stores like Amazon go may take away the retail jobs. So great. I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah who wants to uh,
2: be stacking shelves, that's, that's especially an into point. their 120s. <laughs> right. You know, we've, we've been here before for thousands of years that as technology changes, I mean, it's not easy when you lose your job and you don't have another skill. And that's another reason for for having these retraining capabilities. And, you know, I've sympathized for a truck driver who will be put out of work. I mean, think about mechanics. My, my Tesla, I haven't taken it back to the shop in three years. And I did the first year. And they said, why are you here? Our cars don't need servicing. That whole industry is going to go away, um, which isn't great. But I would say it's, it's actually necessary, unfortunately, for professions to be lost. It's always happened. We don't have people looking after horses in, in our garages anymore. It, you just, the world is better for it. In 1840, people thought that if the population triples, which it has, uh, London would be the worst place on earth. The streets would be filled with two feet high of horse manure. Of course, we don't have that anymore, and London's a pretty good place to live because the technology has changed. But that means that people who are once expert making Carts and buggies uh, are no longer in business. so that we'll see this change, but what we've learned, and we we should really learn this by now, is that when people when professions are lost, then we humans we use them in other ways. we We have an an insatiable appetite for things that humans can do for us, right We live in a world where you can go down and have your nails manicured if you want. We we live in a a life of luxury and it'll be a world where instead of somebody doing truck driving um, or, you know, who knows what, fixing your car, they will be, you know, doing coming to your house, cooking dinner if you want. Or, you know, think up some other things that what would you do with an extra uh, 50 million people who could otherwise be using their time more productively.
1: Yeah, it might look something like how in Japan, craftsmen are valued above almost anything else. So you might have people that specialize in like 30 year old aged coffee with a 40 minute pour over. That was something that uh, Kevin Rose and Tim Ferriss recently talked about in their trip to Japan, which is pretty cool. Um, So yeah, we can, I'm sure we can figure out what to do with those people. Um, What do you think, and for other implications of living longer and uh, automation, everything else, but really with the population growth, what do we do about food? Is that an issue? And maybe cities become overcrowded, like does earth become overcrowded when people can live much longer?
2: Right. Well, it is already overcrowded. Um, Mm -hmm. I just got back from Uganda where humanity has just encroached as far as it can towards the gorillas there's now a a virtual fence where they can't go in but um, if that wasn't there if that national park hadn't been set then they would have run right over the gorillas and burnt down every part of that forest and and they may still do that unfortunately Hmm. so you know we we are a plague on the planet but we are here we're not going away you can't just click your fingers and and make half of us die this isn't a marvel movie and (laughs) And by the way, even if you did, in 30 years, we'd all be back again. So, you know, we're here to stay. We have to solve it. We can't just deny it. And ironically and unexpectedly, if you do the calculations, as I've done uh, and as I talk about in my book in more detail, is that if we are able to delay people's diseases and make them much less costly and more productive, it's actually far better for the planet. Um, Because you're you're not wasting a lot of money on spoon-feeding the elderly or, you know, helping them go to the toilet. That money can be put into um, solving environmental problems, right? So I'm I'm just an individual, and I'm helping the Ugandans build schools and and all that kind of stuff so they don't march into the forest. But I'm just one person. If we have trillions of dollars to help our countries and foreign countries – then we can, we can stop what's already going on. The other uh, thing that's, that's interesting is the population growth. We are now um, as a species slowing down our population growth in most Western countries. The average rate of growth is less than replacement. Japan has an issue, Western Europe, um, and increasingly uh, the US is reaching stabilization. If it wasn't for immigration, those countries would be going down. Um the impact of that, at least in the short run, is is really quite a problem. Uh, China, I should mention, is having the same problem, where the number of people who are over 65 uh, actually outnumbers the people who are in their youth. Um, and across the planet, um, it's for the first time in human history that ratio is being flipped. What that means is for a country like Japan, their farmer's average age is 65 It's a real problem because for for every child born, they have to take care of multi-generations. And if those those great-grandparents are sick and their grandparents are sick and their parents are getting sick, no economy can bear that, that, no family can bear that economic burden. So this is the solution to that. Now, there will be more people on the planet, but not as many as you think, Um, in part because population growth is declining in many places, but also because population growth comes from places where people have very short lives. Um, And that's actually one of the reasons that people have a lot of children. So when Mm. you increase their health, uh, you get lower population growth and you get increased wealth. And then the wealth gets put back into health. So there's this virtual cycle of health, then wealth, then wealth, then then health. So this is a a solution. The number of people actually is gonna level off uh, at about 11 billion, 10 to 11 billion, the United Nations says. And even if we stop people from aging, um, that's not going to be a big difference. Uh, even if we stopped everyone dying today, imagine, I don't know, we all become zombies. The number of uh, people on the planet is only going to go up uh, by a, a small percentage each year. And of course, we're not going to stop aging. We don't know how to stop people dying. All we're going to be doing for, for our lifetimes is making people healthier for longer. And it's not going to overpopulate the planet. You spoke about food. Uh, We throw away half the food in the U.S. every day, Um, so we don't have a food shortage. What we do need, though, is to make our food with less impact. It's one of the main reasons I switched from eating a lot of meat every day to rarely eating meat. Um, And farmed fish, I think, is okay for me. But, yeah, we can greatly reduce our impact on the planet just by changing what we eat. Yeah,
1: You even mentioned in the book that eating less meat is better for anti-aging like it's an anti-aging strategy so
2: yeah you know um uh, our friend joe rogan he's a a carnivore as are are many (laughs) people and and i think it's fine if if you're if you want to be a carnivore i'm not going to stop you i'm not going to prescribe anything uh that said i think that a carnivore diet is like burning the candle at both ends because our bodies if they're putting a lot of effort into growing and uh, sustaining big muscles, then they're not putting that energy into surviving, into building a long-lived body. And while you might look look really good in the mirror, uh, you know, by the time you're 90, I suspect you'll regret it. So yeah, I go back and forth with Joe about that, and it's a healthy debate. Um, I think the the best solution, if you want to do both, is to have periods where you you fast and you focus on plant amino acids, based aminos. Mm-hmm. But yeah, go ahead, eat the meat that you, you love. That's, that's fine. But don't do it all the time. Don't do it every day. Because you mm-hmm. need your body to actually think that it's running out of protein for it to turn on these major defenses that I've been talking about.
1: Mm.
0: That's interesting. So I am cognizant of your time. So maybe we can move on and, uh, to the most likely scenario now. And specifically, I will say after reading your book and looking into this, this space, I do share your optimism for you know being able to make the gains in longevity that we're hoping for, especially just given how many different potential avenues there are for progress. But it does also at the same time seem like it might be a painful transition to get there, you know, given things like like income inequality and you know, like you said, the the wealthy get more wealthy and then they use that to live longer and it's sort of a, a virtuous cycle. So I'm wondering, in your most likely scenario, what does the transition look like between the world we have today and the best case scenario world that you outline in your book?
2: Most likely scenario. Yeah, well, we're right in the middle of that transition This conversation would not have happened 30 years ago, uh, even 10 years ago, because people just weren't that interested and they didn't believe it. Um, But now that we've been doing science at the highest levels and uh, I've written a book, which I think is helping across the globe to tell people that this is possible, we're seeing a change in public opinion about this, particularly in, in younger people under age 40, which is surprising, right? You'd think it would be the old people who'd be Screaming for help, but it, it's not as much, um, and they certainly don't like the idea that aging is a disease. Typically, uh, older people take that as a as an insult. Um, you're right. I, I don't have a disease. I'm not sick. Uh, but the the reason I re- bring that up is the first transition is a uh, a, a public one. What's the conversation? Because we need to have a conversation for things to really change. Because when they do, we'll get more investment in this area at the research level, at the drug development, and at the regulatory level. Um, And so that's happening right now. It's very exciting to see that happen right now. The other thing that's happening, as you said, is that there's so many technologies. And some of them are only a couple of years old. Some Some of them are actually 30 years old in the case of metformin, the diabetes drug that uh, that my father and I take. That's been around for ages. Um, but, yeah, the the new technologies are coming online. There's so many people working on them. So I think within the next 10 years, um, it will be not uncommon to go to your doctor and say, um, I've just had a test for my biological age. It came back at 45. Um, I, I'm going to die in the year 2070. Let's do something about that can you prescribe me metformin even though I don't have type 2 diabetes? Right now, if you said that to a doctor, your your average doctor, they'd say, get out of my office. Are you crazy? I'm not treating you until you get sick. Come back when you've got diabetes, right? Hopefully, within the next 10 years, enough doctors will have heard about this and read the science, the scientific papers, to realize that prescribing metformin is extremely low risk. It's one of the safest drugs in the world. Um, and that, that it, it's worth preventing aging uh, than treating its symptoms, because you know it's one thing to, to stop people falling off the cliff or at least delaying it, but we don't even talk about what gets people to that cliff in the first place. And that's where I think the big gains will be made in our health. But it's it's convincing the doctors actually to use drugs that are currently available. Of course, in 10 years, I'm certain that there'll be some more drugs that, in the toolbox of the doctors. But unless doctors come around to realizing that aging is a medical condition that, that should be aggressively treated, um, those drugs will sit on the shelf and be used either by the rich um, or by just a few patients with specific diseases.
0: Interesting. Now, I do have, I have one question that's maybe a little bit out there. And then I'd have, just have maybe if you have any final thoughts for mm-hmm. our listeners on what they can do. Uh, to finish up but my question that's a little out there is about consciousness and if you have thoughts around you know are cells conscious and is consciousness something that we maybe could create in a substrate like a computer Um, because in your book it does seem like the cells when they become senescent it's almost like they're aware of their own death and they start panicking the other cells around them so I'm I'm just curious how you think about consciousness.
2: Yeah, well, s- cells are still machines. Um, there's a there's possibly some quantum events going on that are necessary, but in general, you could think of them like big big blue. The big blue is not conscious, but it's a very very complicated machine that can perform tasks, and it's got inbuilt algorithms. That's a cell, but if you hook up a trillion big blues and run the right software, you get emergent properties. And that could lead to consciousness. But in the same way that you'd need a trillion big blues, you'd, you need a trillion cells in the brain to be able to to have that consciousness, in my view. Now, what what is consciousness? Uh, what I think it is, is the ability of an object to think about itself thinking. And a higher level of consciousness, which you can get through meditation, is the thinking about yourself, thinking about yourself, thinking, right? Uh, and so with that, that um, I think machines can definitely think about themselves, thinking and contemplate the future. What comes with consciousness, though, is uh, typically you're aware of your own mortality. Um, and that's a burden that, that leads to religion and, and, and humanity. Um, probably what we'll have is when we have AI uh, conscious AI beings. They will invent their own religion when they find out that um, there's mortality. Now, their their lifespan could be measured in centuries, if, if not millennia, uh, and possibly forever until the universe dies. But they will die one day. There's no escaping uh, entropy and the death of the universe. So they still will have to cope with that knowledge that nobody's here forever. And I think that's... Uh, when, when computers start inventing their own religion, we'll know that they're conscious.
1: Interesting. Hopefully that religion is science. So so they'll at least be, you know, advancing in some way. Um, Anyways.
0: Yeah. So maybe any, any final thoughts for our listeners on how they can get involved and, you know, push this forward and, and then maybe say, you know, where people can find you to, to learn
2: more and, and uh, read your book yeah well this is this is a real movement um, a global movement it's it's really going to change the world and it's it's good for individuals and it, it's good for the planet and so I hope everyone listening gets involved I mean the first thing to do is to to read the book I'll listen to it the audiobook book you'll listen to me for a few hours talk but that actually it became a New York Times bestseller and it's done very well so I'm Grateful to everybody who's who's listened to it. You guys, too. Thank you. You can hear more about it and what I'm thinking on a daily basis on Twitter. I'm at David A. Sinclair. I'm on Instagram sending out um, various things that go on in my crazy life. Um, but we, we have a website that's worth um, signing up to where there's a newsletter. And that newsletter I put out every few weeks about what's not just on my mind, but I get a lot of questions from people, hundreds every day. And while I can't answer everybody, I do pick the top topics and write about those in the newsletter. So I think that's worth signing up to as well. And what everybody could do that would be very helpful is a couple of things. First of all, if you read the book, leave a review uh, on the website. That would be great. There are people who leave reviews who have not even read the book. um, And we need people who are actually believers and readers to leave those reviews. Um, And then second thing is to talk about it with friends. Ask the question, what is aging? Is it a disease? Is it something we should worry about? Is it something that's natural or is it something that we should address just like we have with everything else around in our lives? And start that conversation because the more people talking about it, the better. And eventually that'll filter up to world leaders and they'll realize that this is something that we no longer have to ignore. That's great. Well, thank you, David, for
0: taking the time to share your learnings and your passion for discovery. We are thank you to all of our listeners. This has reason, been The Future of Aging. aging. Uh, go read the book, We're Lifespan. We're going to talk about what and has happened, we'll see you next time. What is currently happening,
1: and what will inevitably happen. The past, the present, and the future Hey Futurists, if you've made it this far you might be wondering who created the Hence the Future theme song. It was created by the Walden Brothers and you can find them on Spotify. The Walden Brothers also produced the sound bites for the worst case, the best case, and the most likely future scenarios. At Hence the Future, we're always looking for ways to improve the quality of our episodes and our predictions. To that end, we're building a team of researchers to curate the most authoritative and highly vetted sources as the foundation for every episode. If you'd like to support these efforts, you can donate a small monthly amount at anchor.fm slash hence the future. And if you haven't done so already, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support.